Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. Now, as you probably know, if you're listening to this, Free Movement is an immigration law blog and accordingly, most of the time, we focus on immigration law. But in our constant quest to improve, it's occasionally worth thinking about the medium as well as the substance. That is to say, as an immigration law blog, we sometimes need to think about blogging as well as about immigration law. And to that end, we've put together a series of interviews with some of the UK's leading legal bloggers. The first interview in our series features Adam Wagner. Adam is a barrister with Daily Street Chambers, and before that he was with One Crown Office Row. Adam is the founder and strategic director of Rights Info, uh, an online initiative which builds knowledge and support for human rights in the UK. But most importantly, for our purposes, he's also the founder of the UK Human Rights Blog, one of the country's leading legal blogs and certainly the biggest name in human rights blogging. Hi, Adam. Hi. Get us started. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your legal career. Um, so I have been practicing for about nine years. Um, I did a pupillage at One Crown Office Row and then was a tenant there for, for nine years and very recently moved to Doughty Street. Um, I've been on the Attorney General's panel for five years, so I acted a lot for the government and public law cases. Um, I was junior counsel in the um, Armin Jogi appeal, which was the sort of landmark joint enterprise case in the Supreme Court. Um, I've acted in three public inquiries, um, Baha Musa, Al Swedi, and Midstaffs. Um, and human rights and public law are my main areas. And so that's obviously been reflected in your blogging uh, career as well. I mean, t- tell us, before we get into the, the detail, if you like, where are you at with blogging now? Because obviously you started off um, with the UK Human Rights blog, which was very well thought of. Um, you've since set up Rights Info. Have you sort of transitioned from one to the other? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've basically left the Human Rights blog behind at One Crown Office Row. It was It's my gift to my old chambers, um, having set it up, and I edited it directly for about five years. Um, after which I set up Rights Info, and then sort of moved away um, and let let it go on its own course. Um, so I'm now um, fully ensconced in in Rights Info um, and Twitter. Well, okay, we'll we'll come on to Rights Info and and talk about your tweeting, I think, um, later on. But let's let me sort of take you back to when you set up the UK Human Rights Blog, which was twenty ten, quite soon after you started your your practice. I think you've said in the past that one of the reasons you set up the blog was it was because you admired other legal bloggers and what they were doing. So who were they, and what was it about what they were doing that you admired? Um, the, there weren't any particular legal bloggers. It was more about the blogs which I saw um, a couple of other chambers. I think Matrix had just set up its hum- uh, Supreme Court blog, um, and 11KBW were doing something about information law. And I just thought, well, there needs to be a human rights blog, Um it's perfect time to set one up. Um, the, the technology was just arriving um, through WordPress that allowed you to do that. Uh, what used to be a really complicated um, HTML ex- exercise, um, f- pretty much over in about an hour, you could set up a blog and run it, um, which was just brilliant. I, I, I um, used to design um, websites, which was sort of um, oh. as a sideline, and, and I did a bit of graphic design. So I knew very, very instantly when I saw WordPress, I knew how important it was going to be for letting people, um, basically democratising the, the, the internet um, writing movement, um, which was really exciting. So I set up the Human Rights blog, I think, that as soon as I finished as a pupil, 
and became a tenant. Um, we, um, Rosalind and Eng- English and I, who was a co-founder, who was a, an academic member of Chambers, we set something up running on WordPress privately. Um, we just tried it out for a couple of months and then I took it to a Chambers AGM and said, look, we can set this up. It will cost nothing. Other Chambers are doing it. We should get in, in there early. And, and most people, I think, um, sort of smiled and said, well, that's not going to cost any money. So that's, <laughs> what's the risk? Um, and it took off from there. So it was more of a, a commercial imperative almost. You saw the competition at it and you thought we need to get in on this to make sure we're not left behind. I mean, I to be fair, it was really about uh, for me. Um, it was it was to to give me the opportunity to learn about human rights law. I didn't even know very much about human rights law, except I wanted to get involved in it. At the time, I wasn't involved in any human rights cases, um, and I was really excited to write about um, the latest developments and also um, to fill a gap which I saw between journalism and legal journals where you know, legal journals were inaccessible for various different reasons to the, to the public and legal journalism really wasn't very good um, and there's this emerging area of human rights where a lot of members of the public were really interested in it but not a lot of good um, primary sources to be able to understand what was going on. And having identified that gap in the market, if you like, where there was nothing in this space it seemed to take off quite quickly. I, I saw an interview you did in, I think, 2011 when you were all already getting 40,000 hits a month, um, thousands of people on mailing lists. What account, you know, those are very good numbers very quickly. I mean, how, what accounts for that success? Well, I, I, I first of all, I, w- without wanting to blow my own trumpet, I'm, I'm a good publicist. Um, so I made sure to um, get the blog out. I, I did a bit of research about how to um, how SEO works, about how you get on Google, um, and one of the things it said was make sure you uh, are linked to by established institutions. So as soon as we got set up, I'm, I got in touch with all the law university libraries um, to get us linked to on their sites, which they did, and they were all really excited about it. Um, so we instantly started showing up on Google um, on Google uh, rankings. Um, and then quite quickly, the the journalists cottoned on, cottoned on, and they, you know, looking for expert commentary, they learned that there was a reputable place, um, and it was already, I was kind of um, used the there was a bit of a quid pro quo of using the chamber's name to um, to launch it because on the one hand, chambers got as you say like a good commercial um, uh, sort of leap ahead. Um, or advantage, and the the other side of that was I um, the blog got to use the chamber's reputation. So, you know, I made sure there was a there was a, a excellent, um, well known barristers writing occasionally for it, as well as me who was unknown, um, and you know n- knew nothing, and and that could kind of it just took off from then. I'm interested to hear you talk about that relationship with Chambers then and being able to, there was a sort of mutual benefit of, of um, using one, the, one another's brands, if you like. Uh, because one thing uh, Colin Yeo, our editor at Free Movement, um, says quite forcefully is that a legal blog should have a very separate identity from any given firm or Chambers. It should be a standalone entity and it wouldn't work if it were the, you know, Free Movement wouldn't work if it were the Garden Court immigration blog, for example. Um, to be honest, I don't think... Um, credibility in social media really works like that. I think credibility is mostly earned 
in social media. So, and I think you can lose it really quickly and you can gain it quite quickly if you're doing a good job. And, and I think that's more important in a way than the corporate identity that's attached to it. Um, so the human rights blog, so, so uh, the, the human rights blog is a good example because one Crown Office Row wasn't known for public and human rights law really, although there was a lot of good public law practitioners there when I started. It wasn't really known in the public for that. Um, and the chambers became well better known um, for that those areas of law at the same time as the blog became better known. Um, and I know that because I read used to sit on the pupilage committee and I read all the pupilage applications. And right, you can right. see um, lots of people mentioning the blog and saying that's why you know that's why I want to come to chambers. And I think that's really um, it was it, in the end it was great for everybody. And I think it it, it really put um, one kind of officer on the map and kind of unearthed. Um, publicly a really excellent set of barristers um, and, there, and there are brilliant barristers there in public law and human rights and, and on the other hand it was um, it, it worked as a as a project in itself um, as a credible source of human rights news that went um, beyond what the press was doing and what the journals were doing. I mean you've talked about it being a platform for uh, journalists getting in touch with you or contributors has it helped your legal career in any way? Um, well, I think there's a couple of different ways of looking that, at that. Um, I, I've never seen my legal career and my blogging and tweeting and, and pub, what I call public advocacy as separate. I, I see it as the same thing. I, and, I, and I certainly don't... It, I, blogging is, uh, and tweeting are a very inefficient way of building a reputation legally because you spend a lot of time doing it and the return is, you know, is pretty low. But on the other hand, yeah, absolutely. It, it gets your name out there and if, you're, if you don't mess it up you can build a really nice public um, profile that you know that, that people will then say well I want that barrister you know when they see your name on the list they, they want I want that barrister because I know him I was reading his tweets or I was reading his blog about this case um, I've had some really big cases come in through the blog like for example the Jogi case um, Felicity Gary literally was searching the internet for article 7 of the convention and found a blog about it on the human rights blog and it was over Christmas, and she called me up and said, "Do you want to get involved in this permission to peel application?" Oh, that, wow. that was really that, and 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 it went from there. So, it it yeah, I mean, it's if you can do it well, it can be a really fantastic um, part of your career. So I mean, it must involve a huge time commitment if you're doing it for the love of. Um you know, advocacy and explaining the law to people at the same time you're building your practice um, full-time. You know, a lot of practitioners I talk to about blogging sort of say, oh, yeah, you know, great, but, you know, where are you finding the time to do this stuff? Um, and sometimes maybe there's even a suspicion that people who are very active um, blogging and social media can't have that much going on in their in their practice, um, which obviously isn't, isn't true in your case. You've, you know, your, your career has flourished, um, but it must take a huge amount of motivation. Yeah, I mean it's um, and I and I do get that sometimes. Like you know, oh, do you do you actually do legal work? Um, and one of the issues is that I don't, and and most I think tweeters and bloggers don't blog and tweet about their own cases except when they're finished. And that's a, re- a really important rule of thumb for me that I'll never tweet about anything that I'm doing at the moment, whether you know I'm in X courts or I'm doing this or this is coming out, because I'm just too wary of 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 um, getting getting the balance wrong um, in terms of what I can and can't talk about so I just don't talk about any of it but 
I think that eventually you you go beyond that, and 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 if you you've got a decent career and you're involved in cases, then you then people figure that out. Um, but I think there's you know that 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 some barristers and and lawyers and professionals don't have time to blog or tweet because it take them a day and a half to do something which they really are you know would put out in the public domain, and I think that is too much. I I do stuff pretty quickly. Um, I often do stuff at night um, or the weekends and and I and I figure it out I figure it out because I love doing it and not because I see it as a sort of burden I need to get something out yeah yeah absolutely I mean it's never going to work for you as a blogger if you don't fundamentally enjoy writing yeah it's a bit it's a bit like who has time to go to the gym or who has time to do yoga or who has time to spend time with their children it, it's 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 the if you care about something you make time for it and you figure it out and sometimes the the balance works and sometimes the plates will come crashing down but that's that's quite a fun balance to have. Definitely, and you've talked about you being able to produce uh, blog posts or, or tweets or whatever it might be quite quickly. How important is that in terms of um, getting an audience for a given post to be able to react quickly to something that's happened, whether that's a case or something in the media? Um, because I think that's something, you know, free movement. We consider that's really important to you know, if it's a Supreme Court case, to comment on the day or as soon as possible. Whereas a lot of practitioners, you know, they're working and, oh, yeah, maybe a couple of days' time I'll be able to get something out on that by which time no, one, no one's interested. I think it depends on the audience because I think that the legal audience will always be interested in interesting commentary about an important case. And actually, sometimes the hot take is the wrong hot take um, yeah. on a Supreme Court case. And, and it's more important to read what the experts are saying two or three weeks later or three months later when they've really considered it and everybody's had a time to percolate their ideas um so i think that audience will always appreciate something good that comes later but with blogging and tweeting the the sort of holy grail in terms of engagement is the instant hot take um and that's why you know today i was tweeting about the um dsd judgment which came out in the supreme court and i made i made sure to that because I had I knew I would have the time this morning, I sort of set it up so that I would be able to get it out quickly, um, and I wanted to be able to comment as it was as it came out. And so I, and you're I planning like, ahead, not yeah, just yeah. I I I often um, will try and think through what I'm going to be able to do and, and what will be helpful and what I think would be interesting to to write about, and that's kind of um, in a way Twitter has for me almost replaced blogging as a. I mean, it is blogging for me. It's what I that's where I blog now is on Twitter. Um, as opposed to, I don't write long form very much at all anymore. Um, although I was for about probably six, seven years, I was writing really regularly on either the blog or in the newspapers. But at the moment, I'm not. Um, probably because of rights info and for various reasons that, that I I don't write very much. Um, but Twitter is where where I where I am now. That's really interesting because I I've seen a lot of the time David Allen Green will do a series of tweets about something Brexit related and then later that day or the next day there'll be a blog post in which a lot of that material is reprised or an article in the Financial Times in which you know the tweets have almost been collected and published as one. Um, so really what you seem to be saying is that you know blogging and then sharing it on social media as distinct activities are that's not the right way to think about it maybe. Um for me the so so if if I didn't have rights info going on, I would do what David does, and I would try and make sure I, I write things long form, and I would um, probably develop a relationship with a newspaper and make sure that I'd, I had a, sp- a platform for doing that. Um, but I've sort of taken a view that that's 
that's not something I have time to do during this period where Rights Info has been being set up. It's been going for less than three years and I've devoted just a massive amount of time really in the background um, getting things set up there. And that's... um, And so really when I want to write about something or express an opinion about something, I'll, I'll stick it on Twitter and hope that that's enough. Um, but actually, it's quite it, because of the the lengthening of tweets. It's actually be- and 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 the sort of more formal threading that you can do there now. It's it's actually become quite an effective platform for for blogging, um, and I think that that's quite a really interesting development. Definitely, and and speaking of interesting developments, we've talked a lot about rights info, so let's sort of um, zero in on that. That's your your main um, project outside of practice, I suppose. Yeah. Did that develop out of the human rights blogging in some way? Was is there a sort of linear um, progression in that, or is it, you know, a separate? I mean, it's it's all about um, public engagement, um, graphics, social media, rather different perhaps from from legal blogs. So is it is it something that would have developed independently, or was there a sort of a, a pathway from one to the other? Um, so I, I think Rights Info was, was a linear development as far as I saw it. Um, I've been working on the, the Human Rights Blog for about five years and it was very dependent on me. In terms of being reactive, it was very dependent on me being around to react. Um, and I did a lot of sort of press response pieces, you know, the, 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 what's now pretty standard, this is why this Daily Mail article is wrong. Um, and I was interested, I started reading quite a lot of research about public attitudes and how you what people think about human rights and what people feel about human rights and how you can change minds and and all that research was saying that that this kind of elite level or expert level responsive stuff isn't going to isn't going to be enough um although it serves an important role at the at the kind of elite journalist and politician level which is where the blog was um so i started looking for some funding to set up something which was much more public facing and you know, not really focused on a particular method, but more about how do you engage people than using those methods to finding money and and expertise to use whatever it was, animations or infographics or articles or whatever, um, to get people interested in human rights, get people to support human rights, um, and that and it went from there. Um, but it's an interesting distinction you draw there between the blog being something that was, I think you said, elite level. Um, journalists and um, other lawyers and I suppose um, educated people whereas rights info you're, you're targeting a much wider demographic yeah we're, we're trying to we're, we're, we're more sort of BuzzFeed than Financial Times or Guardian that's that's the aim is to is to go, go where people live rather than um, expect them to come to us and that's it so, so as opposed to um, the human rights blog, which is which is was only ever written for by lawyers and academics, um, rights info is you know all of our staff come from non charity and non human rights world, um, and there you know we've got um, professional journalists, we've got a um, video producer, we've got a creative director, and they are completely coming at it from a different perspective. So it's it's not. Um, what? How do we explain this? It's it's more about how do we excite people and interest people about what's going on. It, it's just a different kind of writing, a different kind of expression. How hard is it to sort of collaborate and to expand and to draw other people into a blog while still maintaining the same tone and the same you know some measure of consistency when uh, with over a hundred people um, 
contributing. Well, the important thing is guidelines and editors, really, and, and culture. You know, to an extent, once you become known, people people will know instinctively how what you're expecting and what you need, what kind of writing they need. But on the other hand, you need to have. I mean, we always had pretty strict guidelines with the human rights blog. You know, nothing over a thousand words, plain English, um, hyperlink to primary sources, not secondary sources. Really simple stuff and really simple and, and explain what you mean in the first. Explain what you want to say in the first paragraph. I think those were the four sort of golden rules. I think with with blogging and with writing generally, um, to an extent, you're either good at it or you're not. Um, but on the other hand, you can. A lot of people are natural and potentially very good writers, but they need to be taught what the basic rules are. Um, and I think that, that that journalists get that training. Um, unfortunately, lawyers don't. In a, in a way, lawyers are taught to write non not clearly and um, in a verbose way, and you know using. Um, using technical terms without explaining what they mean and it's kind of um dreadful really and the best lawyers the best you know if you watch david panic um in front of the supreme court he's not um he's not using sort of extra long sentences and 50 with 15 clauses and 12 latin words that's in a way i I think when lawyers do that it's, it's a sign of weakness rather than strength he will david panic will just stand up and and say oh this is really simple and there's three reasons why and and, and, and and he makes it look really easy. And I think it's the same with good writing, that making something simple and plain English and short, and I'm talking not, you know, a thousand words short, which is a lot short for lawyers, um, but 300 words short, really sort of getting it encapsulated, not using any technical terms, not using cliches. I mean, that's one of my big um, bugbears is cliches, um, although a lot of people don't really agree with that. Um, I think that's something you can train people in and you can do it through editing, you can do it through training. Um, it's, it's hard for people to make that switch all the time when they're doing legal drafting, which, as you say, shouldn't be overly complicated and verbose, but often is. Switching over then to a medium where yeah. you have to be simple and clear or you have no audience. P- people get the wrong idea from legal training. They think that because it sounds complicated, it's it it's it is complicated and and usually it sounds complicated because you haven't explained it very well and I'm not saying that I'm the best legal drafter but you know I think that there's a huge advantage to learning to write clearly for a pub for the audio for a, for any audience um, in law because you never know what 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 the judge knows you never know who who your audience's ultimate audience is going to be. And I think that's a, an amazing skill. And in a way, I, I mean, I, I often think that the, the ultimate test of someone's writing is being able to write a press release. Right, because, right. Be, because that is, um, it, for me, that just encapsulates everything that's important about writing. You know, can you get someone interested in, in a sentence? Can you guide them through exactly what you want them to know about the thing that you're releasing? Um, can you give them... The sources for further information if they need it you know it's, it's everything that's good in an article you'll find in a good press release um and but but equally i mean for, for for rights and for the human rights blog we've only ever had one way of finding writers um and we, which is asking people for a 150 word summary of a case in plain english and the i've done i've recruited writers for both projects in exactly the same way we ask people for that summary we ignore CVs. We ignore names. We put it. We put them as we we name them as numbers, and then we mark on a on a spreadsheet out of ten. And what are you, what are you looking for in those summaries? I'm looking for you, you know it when you see it. 
So, so um, really good. Like this ex- interested me and excited me. And you could do it. I think you can do it fifty words. I don't think. I think one hundred and fifty is actually too too much. I think you can you can just see who's got it and who's not. And that's how we've I've recruited probably over a hundred people um, just using that method. I never look at CVs. I think CVs are a real. Um, a real uh, distraction or uh, I, I, yeah I, th- I think herring. I think yeah red herring I think that CVs are much more of a sign of um, usually how wealthy you are that rather than um, how good you are as a writer or as a um, you know as a lawyer so if I, I tend to ignore CVs or ask people for a sort of 20 word why me kind of thing um, and I think that's a really good way of um, finding good writers at least it may not be a good way of finding good lawyers but I bet it is it's a really exciting initiative. I think a lot of people uh, will be looking out to see uh, where Rights Info go um, from here. Thank you. Um, you've just moved to uh, Data Street Chambers, where we're speaking today. Yeah. Um, exciting time all around for you. Yeah, really exciting time for me. Um, and this is a really exciting move um, that allow me to focus in on more um, sort of hardcore human rights law, if I put it like that. Um, a lot more claimant stuff. I'm... Um, focusing entirely or pretty much entirely on on claimant human rights law now which I think was a sort of natural progression for me Um, and yeah I'm really excited to get cracking. Well we'll watch your career with interest uh, as well as looking out for what rights info goes with your with your hand on the tiller. Thanks Um, very much. Thanks Adam, thanks for your time.